Tonight we are joined by a guest um, that I had first come into contact with uh, or had an awareness of while he was at the University of Mississippi, but come to find out he's actually been a assistant coach at many schools, among them being Vanderbilt uh, University, uh, also UNC Wilmington, Notre Dame, LSU, University of Central Florida, and then the aforementioned Ole Miss and the SEC. But Coach Godwin is a East Carolina Pirate to the core. He is a former player under Coach LeClaire there back from 1998 to 2001, uh, senior captain, starter. Uh, so he has his undergrad and his graduate degree from East Carolina. So you might say he is home. And welcome, Cliff, and thank you for joining us tonight. Walter, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. You're very, very welcome. We appreciate it as well. The first question that I have for you, Cliff, is the expectations as a former player. I know you've had some former alums come through there, Eric, with at Michigan, and <clears throat> I know that it's a pretty tight fraternity. But can you speak to becoming a head coach of a university where you played? Yeah, of course. Uh, first off, the stars have to kind of align. And what I mean by that is you have to be at a place in your professional career that the place that you played at wants you, and they have to have an opening. And when the East Carolina position came open in the summer of 2014, we were actually making a run at Ole Miss we were playing, we hosted the regional, and then we had to go to the super regional down at Louisiana Lafayette. And Number one, they were very respectful of me and trying to keep it quiet because I didn't want it to be a distraction to our players by any means. And they actually flew out to Omaha, and I interviewed at 7.30 a.m. in a double treat hotel on Saturday morning, and our first game was Sunday against the University of Virginia. So um, I interviewed – I thought I did well, had no idea if they wanted me to be their next head coach. And, um, you know, of course, I wanted them to make a commitment to say that they were going to put us in a position where we could compete at a national level and compete for a national championship. And once they did that, did that it was a dream come true for me um, to be able to come back and lead my alma mater. But it, it's it's such a special thing for guys like Eric Backage, Nick Schnabel, Bryant Ward, who's the assistant at UCLA, um, and others that I played with that are in the college game that, you know, I call my best friends and their brothers to me because we were so close when we played at East Carolina. Do you feel that there it carries an extra weight uh, for you as a coach, you know, with regard to knowing, you know, the landscape there, obviously, but more important, the expectations uh, of the fans that you were once a player. So you kind of know what they're all about. Do you ca did you feel that being a head coach there carries any particular extra weight for you? I definitely didn't think that going in. And, and I'll be honest with you. I think the fans probably give me um, more so than they do other coaches in other areas, probably give me a hall pass when we don't play as well, because I did play at East Carolina and I'm not saying that's right, wrong, or indifferent. Um, I actually stay off social media a lot more today than when I first got the head coaching position because, as you know, there's a lot of great stuff out there, but a lot of stuff's toxic as well. And, you know, especially the way we started off the season with the expectations that we had, um, 
um, I feel bad for our players more than I feel bad for me because some of the stuff that people say about them um, is hurtful and it's not fun to be a part of. So um, I actually have all my social media slid off my phone where I have to search for it to actually get on it. Um, but I think it's a great resource if you're looking for the right things to better yourself as a coach or a player to find resources to help you better yourself for sure. I, for one, know exactly <laughs> what you're speaking of. <laughs> so I, I completely understand, but I will say it's never how you start, it's how you finish. And uh, I know that you're starting conference, uh, your conference schedule this week after, a, I would not say uh, it's anything but a layup uh, when you're, you know, you're going in and you have to play NC State at your <laughs> midweek game leading into your conference champion. So, so let's talk about that for a quick second. The the good, the social media creates an awareness and an energy and a vibe. The bad, the weight that <clears throat> the, the social media puts on players. And that, when I say the weight, I mean the weight of expectation. I know you to be an extremely inspirational, fired up, energetic coach. In fact, last year when, uh, you know, you your season ended, I, I just could feel your energy through some of your, your words uh, that I was able to read on social media. But can you explain to parents and student athletes, everybody sees social media differently, but the negative vibe and the, the, the weight that it carries, it's such a heavy, heavy burden. So easy to discount as an adult and say, well, you know, if the kids can't take it, if they can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen. But, you know, they're all reading, watching, listening to social media. Can you talk about that as a coach and what you have to do to get the, the student athletes to kind of refocus, re-energize as they get prepared for their conference play starting this weekend? Well, I tell our team all the time that if you believe it when it's good, you're going to believe it when it's bad and just be careful. Um, the social media stuff, in my opinion, it just promotes such a selfishness. And when you're trying to have a team and promote a team culture and team first, and not all the time, but I mean, Instagram and Snapchat, you're, you're taking selfies, you're taking a picture of yourself and you're putting it on social media. So, hey, look at me. Um, and everybody's putting out their, your best, their best moment at that time. Hell, even me, you know, I work a lot and I'll look up and see on Instagram, one of my best friends, his family there, you know, down at Turks and Caicos and they're flying around on private jets. And I'm like, God, my life sucks. Um, I'm working my tail off and we're losing games, whatever it may be. And that's real when it comes to mental health stuff for sure. And I can tell you this, we have dealt, um, with a lot more mental health issues post COVID than I've ever thought I would probably deal with as a head coach. And it's real stuff. And I don't blame it all on social media, but when you go through and people are, um, just putting out their best moments and maybe you're struggling, um, in baseball or you're struggling in life, whatever it may be, I think it definitely um, holds more weight and kind of puts you in probably a worse place. Um, but th there's a lot of positive stuff. I, I just would encourage parents to make sure their kids are doing things that they can control. They're doing well in school. They're being an overachiever in whatever they're doing, whether it's baseball, 
whether it's, uh, you know, playing a musical instrument, um, anything that they're doing to be an overachiever, because that's the, the thing, in my opinion, is the best compliment is somebody to give you is, hey, this guy overachieved. I would consider myself as a baseball player to be an overachiever. I was not recruited by Coach LeClaire. I was recruited by a guy, Coach Gary Overton, and I say recruited very lightly because actually my high school coach who's in the North Carolina Sports Hall of Fame twisted Coach Gary Overton's arm to give me an opportunity. It was the only Division One baseball scholarship offer I had. And I redshirted my freshman year, and then there was a coaching change. And I just bought myself enough time with Coach LeClaire to turn myself into a good player. I did well in school. I was the first one to show up to practice, last one to leave, and just worked my tail off until the rawness of my skills were able to get to a level where Coach LeClaire didn't want to cut me. And I'm sure there were times that he thought that he should cut me because every end-of-year meeting I ever had when I was actually playing uh, was, hey, you're going to play less. We're going to recruit over you. And I never asked him before he passed away, uh, did he really mean that or was that a motivational tool? And I believe that it was actually what he meant. It wasn't a motivational tool at the time. So um, that's what I would encourage parents and, and kids to get caught up in is just what they can control and not how many hits they get or how many guys they strike out. Because, as you know, the game of baseball in my opinion, it's the toughest thing to be able to manage because it's a game of failure. And it's not just hitting, it's pitching. You can throw a pitch exactly where you're supposed to throw it, and Bryce Harper can hit an opposite field home run. Well, you executed the pitch, just a really talented player beats you in that moment. Boy, you are firing on all cylinders here because you're you're right up where I wanted to go with this. And so I think – what I know you to be as a coach, it sounds as if you were even more that as a player. And that is someone that takes pride in being accountable, being present uh, for your own opportunities um, and not worrying about others' thoughts or opinions, just making sure you're taking care of your business each and every day. With regard to the student athletes that you find that fit the pirate mold, where does your recruiting take you? Are you focused on the Carolinas primarily? Do you have uh, recruiters or recruiting opportunities all over the country? Do you focus on tournaments or, or your own camps at East Carolina? Well, I think it, it, a lot of different ways for sure. I mean, definitely our recruiting starts in the state of North Carolina locally. And one of the biggest reasons is we're a state institution. We don't have a lot of help with financial aid whatsoever. I mean, actually, there there's none. So you, you have to spread out your scholarships. Well, you've got to do the majority of your recruiting in North Carolina. And then when you have a special need, we might, you know, go get a kid from Florida or Virginia or uh, we, we've gotten some kids from South Carolina or the Midwest or even, um, you know, our fifth-year catcher, he's from Colorado. He came from a junior college, but he's originally from Colorado. So I would say it's all over the place, but it definitely starts in North Carolina. And, of course, I mean, two of my assistants are out tonight watching high school games um, on our day off because we play NC State tomorrow night. Uh, in the summer, all three of us are out on the road chasing down different tournaments just to try to find the best players that can fit East Carolina. As you know, recruiting happens earlier and earlier, and it's tough to to figure out 
even as much research as we do before we offer a kid a scholarship about their, you can figure out their academics because you can get transcripts and you can find that out. But mentality, work ethic, being a great teammate, um, all that stuff is hard to figure out because most high school coaches and travel coaches, I mean, they're around them most of the time, but they, they're their best player. So obviously they feel highly about them. Um, and we've missed on some kids, as everybody in the country has done at times, just because the recruiting has happened so early um, in their career. But we do as well as we can with the amount of information that we have to make the most educated decision that we can make to make sure it's a good fit at East Carolina. Do you find that you, as a college coach in today's environment, are looking for more now ready student athletes as opposed to those types of student athletes that may take a year or two to, from a physical standpoint to get themselves up and running with today's college game? I wouldn't say we are. I, I would say now with the transfer portal, it, it's making harder for uh, young men and their families to be patient. I mean, I, I can't tell you the amount of conversations I've had with freshmen that I actually like on our team, and maybe they're not getting as much playing time as they would like. And I'm like, just you're doing the right thing. Stay, you know, stick to the plan. Our, one of our best relievers, Garrett Saylor, um, he basically had the yips his freshman fall. He could not throw the ball um, in the air to home plate. And he just started working and he got a little bit better that, that spring. And he was not on the travel roster. He was doing a pitcher versus hitter and got a little bit better. And then you look up at the end of the year and he did not throw many innings, but he threw two innings, I think in a regional and two separate games that we had a decent lead in 2019 when we had to come through the loser's bracket. And it allowed us to save the bullpen for some of our guys that need to pitch in crucial moments to allow us to win that regional in 2019. And, and now he's, in my opinion, one of the best relievers in the country, but it's his fourth year. And uh, it's it just society doesn't promote patience now, as you know. So I would say that's the toughest thing, but I, I like to see guys grow up. I like to see them develop. I mean, that's why I got into coaching was, to look at a young man come in and then you look three, four years out and you look at a guy like Connor Norby, who was a second round draft pick from East Carolina in his freshman year. I don't know how many at bats he had, but it was less than 50. And he ended up being one of the best hitters in college baseball last year in his third year. I think it's important. And I always try to remind student-athletes, um, that it is a very challenging process to go from either high school or, or ch even a challenging travel program into Division One. And I think as coaches, you know, the definition of being a coach is really to help development for the betterment of, of a student-athlete as a whole, not just as a, as a hitter or a pitcher, or fielder, et cetera. And so I find student-athletes, as well as us parents to be less tolerant of the developmental portion of, of, of becoming a, a student athlete at a major university such as East Carolina. When you hear a student athlete, when he asks you, Hey coach, 
what are my playing opportunities going to be or what, what what should my expectations be when I come into East Carolina? What type of words of wisdom do you try to make sure that you're incoming student athletes or you're recruiting student athletes? What, what, what are they going to hear from, from you as a coach to how to be prepared to walk on, get on campus? Well, what I say to him makes Coach Palumbo, our recruiting coordinator, my associate head coach, it makes him nervous because, you know, he's done all this legwork. And then when I talk to him, I tell him that I think they could definitely help us win a national championship, but I'm not guaranteeing them anything. And if they don't like working hard, this isn't the place for them. And if they're not serious about their academics, this isn't the place for them. And I, I, I really mean that because – in my opinion, if they're scared of that and they're scared about the work ethic that we're going to demand of them, and it's not just baseball, it's academically, it's in the weight room, it's on the baseball field, it's in the community with community service, I, I would say it's really hard to come to East Carolina and be very consistent in those areas because I don't, I don't give on those areas as far as controlling what you can control. Of course, guys make mistakes and you try to educate them on, hey – you know, we have to go to class. We have to be there five minutes early. Put your cell phone in your book bag. And that's why we've been able to sustain the team GPA we've had over the past four and a half years. We've had a 3.41 team GPA or higher um, for the past four, uh, four and a half years. And the reason that is is because we just hold them to a standard. And not all our kids are 4 students, but we expect them to do – um, whatever they're capable of. If you're a three five student, be a three five student. If you're a three two five student, be a three two five student. So I don't um, want to twist anybody's arm to get to East Carolina because if you do that, then they're going to be unhappy and um, it's not going to work out here. You know, I one of the things that my takeaway, especially when I'm watching you coach or watching you when you're doing your recruiting, I mean when whether it was summer travel or watching you at Ole Miss or occasionally I've seen a game or two, uh, East Carolina, um, the energy that you have, is that something that I I call it intensity? Um, You know, you have an intensity about you as a coach. Uh, Is that something that you try to put into your recruiting with regard to that type of energy um, you know, if a student athlete is a little bit more passive, now obviously if he's throwing 95 off the bump <laughs> or hitting 450 foot tanks, I'm sure you can let him be a church mouse. But are you trying to find that that energy giver, um, top of the rail type of guy that that's going to go out there between the lines and kind of represent, you know, you as a coach as well as the university? Absolutely, and and you're right. They're they're not all like that. Gavin Williams was not like that when he first came in. And, yeah, when you saw him pitch at the end of his career last year, he would show some emotion and some fieryness to him. But he, he he didn't talk a lot. You know, you'd have to basically pull out conversations when you had him in your Can office. You, Cliff, tell people about Gavin because – I have heard from – I mean, I know the game I, – I know you know the game I'm referring to, but when you're throwing 97-99 and opposing coaches are going, oh, that's a man. That that, that guy is a man. Uh, I mean, talk, talk a little bit about where Gavin came from and, and what, what he became. Yeah, so Gavin um, – Gavin's from Fayetteville, North Carolina. Um, could always throw hard. 
um, actually uh, tore his, I shouldn't say tore, had a sprain in his MCL his senior year of the spring, and that's probably one of the reasons he actually showed up to campus, um, did not pitch his full senior season. But the one thing about Gavin was always uh, very calm during the draft process. And I can remember very vividly, and you'll laugh about this and the people listening, but he was in summer school um, before his freshman fall. And back then the draft was not slotted. So I think he was taken in the thirties, you know, in the draft by the Rays. And uh, the only July 4th uh, before the rules changed and it became a dead period that I had ever taken off in my coaching career. I'd actually drove down to Atlantic beach, my roommate from college, John Williamson said, Hey, won't you come down for the day? And we had had little league camp. So it just worked out. And um, so I went down there for today the and, we were on the boat and I had a missed call from Gavin Williams I called him. And he said, Hey coach, just want to let you know that the, the Rays called and, you know, wanted to know if I would sign for, um, you know, somewhere between 900,000 and 1.4 million. So I'm, I'm freaking out. And I'm like, Gavin, I can be back in Greenville in an hour and a half. Do you need me to come back to Greenville? And he's like, no coach, I'm in summer school. I'm not signing. Uh, I'm an East Carolina pirate. I'm like, Really, I can come to Greenville. I can be there in an hour and a half. And he's like, no, coach, I'm, I'm good. And, you know, Gavin threw really hard his freshman year, not much off speed whatsoever. Actually had two different instances where he had a flexure strain that freshman year. Um, bad, bad mistake by me, but, you know, let him go up to the Cape just because we probably should have just let him get healthy fully let him go up to the Cape kind of the same thing comes back doesn't pitch in the fall of his sophomore year and then uh, we were going to start him his sophomore year which was in 2019 and we started some him in some of the midweek and then we put him back into the bullpen he actually started the regional championship game in 2019 against Campbell and he actually I had he had pitched the two days before so he was on a day's rest he had thrown 50 pitches on the bullpen and we had to beat Campbell twice on Monday and so we won game one Alec Burleson pitched on fumes and I'm just trying to catch my breath and going like who's going to pitch game two and somebody taps me on my shoulder as I'm getting a sandwich and I look up and it's the big six foot six giant and like I said he doesn't talk a lot he goes coach I want the ball and I said, you want the ball? And he said, yes, sir. I said, well, you just got to promise me you won't treat it as a start. And you'll just go out there and just try to close out the first inning. And if you can only give us one, that's fine. We'll go to somebody else. But, I mean, it was it was spectacular. In front of 6,000, he was facing, and I forget the guy's name for Campbell, but he was a high draft pick, and it was like 98, 99, 100, 98 um, in front of a home crowd. And I knew, I go, man, this guy's got a chance to be special because he he likes the big moment. Well, you get to the COVID year, and he breaks his uh, pointer finger when we're doing rundowns about 11 days before the season started. So he threw three innings before the season was shut down, all out of relief. He threw one inning against High Point, and then he threw two innings in relief against Charlotte. Well, the scouts didn't see him start. He was really young for his age um, in the draft, and he had a number, and he says, if I don't get that number, I'm coming back to school. 
And so uh, the night of the draft, he doesn't get taken. Had a couple clubs offer him, you know, some money, but it wasn't nearly what he wanted. And he said, Coach, I'm coming back to school. And he bet on himself. And it worked out really well for him because he probably made about $1.5 million more than what everybody else was going to offer him by coming back to school, if not more. And, uh, you know, proved that everybody, they could go out there and take the ball Friday night. And I've never coached a Friday night starter or been a part that was as dominant as he was um, for us. I mean, every time he took the ball, we were winning. It was, other than Vanderbilt, I mean, hey, he took the ball, we won. That was the way it went. So super proud of him and the work he put in and the fact that he bet on himself. But that's the type of young man that is under the radar. You don't read about him all over the rankings. You don't see him all over social media. You don't see the PG All-American game. My point, I'm so glad you were able to share that story, is Again, it's not where you start. It's how you finish as a student athlete, as somebody that holds themselves accountable and responsible and is a big boy and kind of takes the necessary steps both mentally and physically to uh, to rise up to those kind of moments. When you took over East Carolina, your, your, your goal when you took the program, as you alluded to, was national championships. You want to be in the mix to play at that city in, in Nebraska in June. Can you talk to, as a player, what that feels like to be in a regional and a super regional um, because it is emotionally packed? And, you know, having had watched a son that played in regionals and super regionals, lost the super regional, lost a regional in North Carolina, lost the super regional against Louisville, and then won a super regional at home. But it's a tremendously it's a tremendous experience, but it's an emotionally draining experience. Can you just talk about that type of environment as a student athlete and more importantly as a coach? Well, Walter, it goes back to when I was playing and, and when Coach Claire was hired in the summer of 1997. Like I said, I had redshirted the, the year before. He was hired, and it was way before social media, so he just read it in a newspaper. But he talked about taking East Carolina baseball and playing in the College World Series. I was sitting there as a player, and I was like, the same one that LSU this, – this was in 97. I was like, the same one that like LSU wins every – like we can go to the same place just because that had never been talked about. And, and that's the one thing Coach LeClaire brought to East Carolina was a vision that we could actually get there. Then his first year, the spring of 98, we were one game above 500. So I'm sitting there. I'm like, this guy has beaten the hell out of us. We've worked out like Navy SEALs, and we're one game above 500. I don't know if this is actually feasible. Well, he signed a really good recruiting class, and that was – Eric Backage and Nick Schnabel were a part of that. Chad Tracy, who's one of my best friends, who played in the big leagues for eight and a half years. And Lee Delfino, who was a fifth rounder out of high school, a sixth rounder out of East Carolina. Like they brought in this this just uh, tremendous talent along with a lot of blue collar guys that that he the ones that stayed or made it, I should say, uh, in the program. And then in 99, we were number one seed in the regional, but we couldn't host the regional in Greenville. We had to go to LSU as the one seed. So we actually beat Southern in game one, beat LSU in the winner's bracket, and LSU had to beat us twice. And we were up, I think, nine to two in the sixth inning in the game they had to beat us. And they came back and beat us. And then 
thunderstorm, rain out. Kurt Ainsworth comes back on two days rest um, and punches out like 13. And Walter, you'll laugh at this. And if Eric hears this, he'll probably kill me. But Ainsworth struck him out uh, three times on nine pitches. So um, I won't say anything to Eric. <laughs> um, but uh, so we, we didn't get to go to the Super Regional. In 2000, we were a number one seed again. We got sent to Louisiana Lafayette. Um, and that's the year they went to the College World Series. Well, finally in 2001, which was my senior year, Eric and Nick had already graduated. Um, we were the seventh national seat overall, and our administration got smart enough to uh, host the regional in this area. So we hosted the regional in Wilson, North Carolina, won the regional, and then that was the first super regional team East Carolina had ever had. And we played Tennessee with Chris Burke, uh, who I think was the tip pick overall that year. And we had leads in the ninth inning in both games and lost both those games. I actually made the last out in the Super Regional in game two. Um, I was a tying run at the plate. Uh, I had hit 15 home runs and uh, a 1-0 pitch sitting on the changeup, got it, and I skied it to second base. I was a left-handed hitter, and uh, that was the end of my career. So I tell you that because of how close that I was as a player, and then you get the head coaching job, and – you know, in 2016, we were inches away. People say 90 feet, but Brady Lloyd hit a ball up the middle with the bases loaded at Texas Tech in game two in the 12th inning that when he hit it, I go, we're going to Omaha. And the ball kicked off the mound and went directly to the second baseman and he flicked it to the shortstop. And um, God's got a plan. And uh, I, I'm so glad, as crazy as this sounds, um, I'm so glad that ball didn't go up the middle because – I don't know some of my decisions that or opportunities I've had professionally. I don't know how much of a legacy I would have left here. And I don't know if some of the decisions I've made professionally would have been the same if that ball would have gone out the middle because back then I thought going to Omaha was the end all be all. And nobody wants to get to the college rule series more than I do, but it's about developing young men to be better people and to be great players and to be better uh, husbands and fathers and just be benefits to society. So um, I'm just glad I've had the opportunity to do that. And we've been super close and um, you know, last year was, was tough, but um, another time that we went toe to toe with, arguably the best, the second best team in the country and faced the two best starting pitchers uh, on any college team, in my opinion, and, you know, went toe-to-toe with them and just were a little bit short. I tell a story all the time, Super Regional against Louisville, 2013. Vanderbilt had a team that went 27-3, and I believe, in SEC play and lost in a Super Regional I remember Maggie Corbin walking over to Tim and her words are so profound and they, they really matter when we're talking to student athletes and families with regard to the emotional component of it. And she said, if, if you're in this thing to only win the last game of the year, you're in it for the wrong reasons. You're in this to develop men, men with character. And you're, these are learning opportunities for both you as a coaching staff and players and Sometimes I think that message gets lost because, you know, we're all about winning. Everybody wants to win and everybody wants to ride the waves when the waves are great. But where is everybody when the waves go silent and, you know, the, the waves are kind of nowhere to be found. So I think it's profound to listen to you tell both of those stories. 
I, I have a student athlete that's asking, you mentioned that you're really in the Carolinas. If somebody is from the Northeast, how would they gain the interest? Is it someone that they would show up at one of your camps or would they communicate with you via social media or, or email? Uh, they're asking how to get on your radar. I, I would say definitely our camps is a way, and you can go to Cliff Godwin Baseball Camp dot com and look up and i don't even know if our summer dates are up for for the high school stuff yet or not but also email is way better for me than social media because i have so many dms that come in from all kinds of stuff so i would say definitely email video if your coach um would send us an email or give us a phone call um just to recommend you that would be another way we always appreciate coaches uh, putting their name on their player because I think that carries a lot of weight, in my opinion. Do you rely more – I know you spoke about it briefly, but I have a parent that's asking, do you rely more on a high school coach's evaluation or a travel ball coach's evaluation <laughs> with regard to a recruit? I, I, I chuckle at some of these because I know that these are somewhat challenging questions, but if a high school coach or a travel ball coach is giving you – a uh, scouting report, Who, who's your value? Or are they both as valuable as the other? Well, Walter, that's a million-dollar question. You know, um, <laughs> I, I, I would say, you know, we listen to both of them. I mean, when we're recruiting a player, we talk to the travel ball coach and we talk to the high school coach. Um, you know, I will say this, and, and I hope I don't offend. Travel ball is definitely watered down more today than it was 10 years ago because more people are doing it, more kids are playing. Um that's not necessarily a bad thing, but, you know, when you play travel ball, you're paying the travel ball coach <laughs> to allow your team, your son to play on that team. So sometimes, definitely not all the time, the recommendation maybe be skewed a little bit when it's coming from a travel ball coach. And But like I said, not all the time. Um, so we listen to both. We try to get as much information as we can and make the best educated decision as we can. And we're not perfect as nobody on this planet is. I know it's a touchy subject. I just want to continue down that road because I feel that you nailed it. Travel ball. Okay. The world of travel baseball 10 plus years ago was extremely um, competitive. And if you played for certain organizations, you knew those teams were going to play against similar teams. Uh, I'll your neck of the woods, Kane's, Dirtbags, uh, you want to go national, Cane, Scorps, you know, that type of thing. In today's world, are you looking to see your student-athletes competing against iron, or are you just going to individually watch the individual and not really care about the level of competition? Walter, you know this because you've been around it for a long time, but it's tough to evaluate a really talented player when he's playing against bad competition. And – um, <laughs> I, we laugh at yes, times. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And this is why I wanted you to go there. Yep. So, you know, we laugh at times and you go watch a hitter and he's facing 78 and you're like, well, he really raked 78 today, but I don't know if he can hit 90. <laughs> you know, I don't know if he can uh, lay off a good slider. And, and that makes our job probably the hardest. And, and that's where – You've got to just continue to research, try to find a game when he is facing better pitching and 
yeah, you can look at the mechanics of a swing and go, hey, I, that, that works. But as you know, if, if there was one tool that I wish you could evaluate, and you can if you watch a kid hit enough, and, and I, I talk about this with Alec Burleson. Alec Burleson's hand-eye coordination was unbelievable. He was as good a competitor as I've ever coached, but his hand-eye, like sometimes he would get himself out because he would see a pitch and goes, I can hit that. But sometimes he wouldn't be able to hit it as hard as he would if he had just waited to actually get a strike. And sometimes his freshman year, I'd say, hey, look, don't just swing at the first thing that you think you can hit. Swing at something you can do damage with early, and then if you get two strikes, swing at something that you can hit um, like you've been doing sometimes in OO. But th- that's the one thing as a hitter for me is that – you can do some things wrong mechanically, but if your hand-eye is off the chart like Alec Burleson, then you've got something special, especially when he's got the compete factor in there as well. For me, the whole point of that was to make sure that you want to challenge yourself. You want to find the environment where you're going to challenge yourself as a student-athlete, get comfortable with being uncomfortable, meaning you might have to drive a little ways to play for a certain team or organization, you want to be involved with an environment that is going to coach you, develop you and get you ready for the collegiate level. And when I say collegiate level, I am not only referring to division one. I was a head coach in division three. I never went to go watch a guy thinking he was, he couldn't wait to play for a division three team. College baseball has 35 roster spots total NAIA JUCO NCAA one two and three the bottom line is you can only you have to challenge yourself to be prepared to play at the collegiate level that was my point and I think you it's really refreshing to hear a coach say listen go out there and compete challenge yourself you know find the opportunities where you can challenge yourself during those summer months, you know, especially if you're in a remote area. I mean, heck, we were from central Massachusetts. <laughs> we had to go out. We had to, you know, kind of find our way. So that was my point of, of asking that question. When you are recruiting, do people ever bring up the American Athletic Conference, the AAC? Do they ever bring that up? I mean, is that something that you ever deal with regard to, you know, the P5 terminology and all that fun stuff? Of course, they they do it. They use it against us for sure. You know, um, they say, "Hey, you're not in a Power Five conference," and and I say, "They whoever's recruiting against us that is a Power Five school, that's one of their first go tos." And my argument is, we'll play them anywhere, anytime, any place, and and we'll hold our own. And uh, that's always been my mentality, and it kind of goes off what you were talking about earlier, my dad was a high school basketball coach for 30 years. I always played basketball against older players. Like that was the thing that allowed me to be a really good basketball player in high school. I was actually a better basketball and football player in high school than I was a baseball player, but I always was playing against older, good players. And my dad put me in really difficult situations and I failed. And I hear Tim Corbin talk about this all the time put your kids in situations where it's hard, where they fail, because that's life. We've all been through failures and you have to learn how to maneuver through it. And I would say that's the biggest thing that we're dealing with now as coaches is a lot of times these young men have not failed. 
because they were the best player in their high school. They were the best player on their travel team. And then all of a sudden they're facing Gavin Williams in the fall and they're failing. Yeah, of course. And they don't know how to handle, how, handle, how to handle it mentally. And then we're trying to pick up the pieces and to, to put them back together. So I definitely would encourage all parents to uh, challenge their um, children whether it be academically or baseball or in the weight room, whatever it may be, because it'll help them um, as they um, go into college. That was really my point, Cliff, is that I feel on a certain level that when we go year by year by year with regard to travel baseball, it's not that way on a high school varsity environment or even heck JV environment. It's certainly not that way in a college program at the high school level. We're competing against 15 to 19 year olds in college. It's 18 to, in some cases as high as 24, maybe even 25 right now with regard to the COVID situation. Sometimes we just get too comfortable facing that 12 and 13 and 14 it's okay to be a 14 year older and want to play up at that 15 16 year old level conversely it's okay to be 15 and want to play at the 17 year old level and i try to encourage all parents to understand that at that next level you're playing against men when you go to college you are playing against full-blown men and you need to make sure that you are mentally prepared because psychologically that can be very very hard and i agree with you with multiple sports how do you when you talk to parents and, you know, you do camps and you talk to student athletes, how do you feel about the, the multi-sport athlete? I know you have an affinity for that, as you just alluded to, but can you kind of talk about not trying to be a specialist as a high school player or even before that at the middle school level with regard to baseball? Well, Walter, I can tell you this, that I would have hated baseball if I played baseball year-round because I wasn't that good at it. So <laughs> I would have been miserable. Um I think it's important just to do different athletic movements. That's why I turned out to be somewhat of a decent player. I mean, I turned myself into an all-conference player my fifth year of college. I was a two-time academic All-American, which I tell people all the time, the only way I could be an All-American was to throw the academic piece in there um, because I wasn't good enough to just be an outright All-American. But you know, the, the competitive side of being a basketball player or a football player and getting knocked on your tail and having to get up. And, you know, when you play basketball, you're sweating on one another and then just the, in the close personal space and having to, you know, box out and body people and play defense. I, I just think it goes a long way when you've played different sports, whether it be soccer or anything else, uh, it's going to help you become a better athlete. And I think, and this is my opinion, I'm not a professional um, on this, I'm not a doctor, but I think a lot of the injuries come from, yeah, definitely overuse of of throwing a baseball. But for me, I've seen more like hip labrum stuff in my past five years as a head coach as I've ever seen. And it's like, well, all these guys just hit one side and they've done it over and over and over again. They never played another sport, so their body's overcompensating on one side instead of playing another sport to maybe help it equal out over time. So that's my opinion, and I just think it helps you in a lot of different ways to play at least one other sport besides baseball. And regardless, if you don't play another sport, you have to take some time off. You have to get away and just go to the weight room, but – 
go out in the backyard and play wiffle ball with your boys or go out to a park and just stop being such a robot. You know, you, you have these guys that become so mechanical and, and the athletic part of the movements just seem to be so structured instead of natural. And I don't think that's a good thing for the longevity of a baseball player, in my opinion. It's, it's kind of a odd timing as Mike Reinhold and Eric Cressy just brought up this topic today, uh, you know, with regard to they're seeing a lot more injuries with regard to position players, hitters specifically, uh, and they attribute that a lot to the fact that specialization is happening at earlier ages. So it's good for, for student athletes and parents to find their way to this, to understand that it's much more than just, you know, being a baseball player is about being an athlete, a well-conditioned athlete, a strong athlete on all aspects, of, you know, not just with regard to baseball. So I know that you're an early riser, so I'm going to kind of keep this tonight's uh, Twitter space a little bit brief. But we do have one uh, additional question. Can you – There's a, this is a question coming from the audience – so if you were to win, if you were to get to Omaha and win a college World Series, what would that mean to Cliff, the, the adult, not just the, the coach of East Carolina University? What would that mean to you personally? Man, that's a tough question. Um, it'd probably take me a, a longer time than just our time here tonight. Um, the first person I think about is Coach LeClaire just because his vision was to take ECU baseball and play in the College World Series, and our fan base is so hungry for us to make it. And as I tell people all the time, we're going to make it. I don't know if it'll be this year. I don't know if it'll be next year. I know we're doing the right things. I know we're recruiting the right guys. I know we have the right guys in our program, et cetera. But, um, you know, it's him. It's the guys I played with and even guys before me um, because – the stadium that we're blessed to have now, the, the guys I played with, we, we helped raise the money. We, we didn't get to play in Clark LeClaire Stadium. We played at Harrington Field. I actually have a picture up in my office, and, Walter, you would laugh at it. it it's, it's a bad high school field, and that's why we couldn't host regionals back when Eric and Nick and I were playing um, because you couldn't host that many people to be at our stadium. So – um, which it wasn't a stadium, it was a high school field. So I just think about all those people and our fans, and um, it, it's not about me. It's, as I tell our team at times, it's about wearing the uniform. Um, it's about wearing East Carolina on the front of it and, you know, the people before you, and you always want to leave the place better than how you found it. Well, I have to tell you, um, I have always been a huge fan of yours as a coach, this evening has done nothing to uh, diminish that in any way. Uh, I find it refreshing. You literally have hit on some really uh, – the narrative of, of travel or youth baseball. It, th these types of discussions, I feel, are for the betterment of, of student-athletes and parents alike because they hear a coach from the heart, you know, and uh, I know that's where you come from in anything that you do. So I want to first – say thank you for taking the time because I know you are an early riser um, and this is a midweek uh, and you're getting ready for a game and you have a big opening weekend this weekend. So I want to say thank you on behalf of Butch and, and um, uh, Brad and Brian and myself. Um, 
you know, we want to say thank you for being a part of our Twitter space. Uh, we are all big East Carolina Pirate uh, University fans. Uh, I, for one, uh, literally had a call two weeks ago with parents and asked them if they were were even considering East Carolina. It's a young man from from uh, Texas who's a catcher. Um, I'll, I'll get in touch with you and we'll talk. 